Welcome to Communion and Shalom. In this podcast, we are exploring how the biblical and historic Christian faith can engage sexuality, ethnicity, culture, and our local communities as we pursue the flourishing of God's kingdom. Our goal is to engage these topics charitably and with nuance. While we're largely shaped by our side B, post-liberal, localist, and multi-ethnic perspectives, and we'll explain each of these perspectives on the show, we're eager to engage a variety of voices. Hi everyone, this is TJ. Before we begin this episode, I wanted to provide a content warning. In this episode, we will touch on topics directly about sex and sexual desire. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining in for another episode. We've received just really kind feedback from various listeners. So thank you so much for both those supporters who are supporting us financially to help with costs and those who have just given feedback. And it's been really, really encouraging to us. But today, we're going to dig into particularly TJ's story and past and why these conversations around sexuality are important to him and how his background has particularly informed that. We thought that that would be valuable. As you hear us talk about different stuff and interview people, that you'd be able to know a little bit about where we're coming from in these things. And hopefully this can fill in maybe some of those blanks or answer some of those questions you might have had from listening to us. So, TJ, thank you so much for being vulnerable a little bit and to share what's, you know, very personal to who you are, to both how God has made you and what he's brought you through, where he's leading you to. Do you have any preliminary comments or do you just want to dive <laughs> right in? Yeah, thanks, David Frank. I do have a, a couple of preliminary comments and I'd be happy to begin. The first thing is in this conversation, I'm just going to touch on a few milestones, kind of the broad contours of my life regarding my sexuality. There's more to say, there's more to say about my life, but still this has been a prominent part of my life and my, even my Christian discipleship since I was young. So yeah, I'm really thankful for this opportunity and let me just begin. Great. So I think I'm going to start when I was three or four. At this time, a lot of my life was moving between Mexico and the parts of the U.S. And at this point, when I was really young, or you know, this age, three or four, I, I had what we can all call gender dysphoria, basically. Whereas a young boy, I often, I wanted to be a girl. I thought of myself as a girl. And I usually participated in things that were coded as a female or girl, girl things, girl activities. I like girl clothes. So I have to start with that as part of my story of queerness, though I will say eventually over time, especially when I started attending school, primary school, elementary school, I started, I kind of resolved as a boy, I guess is what I will say. Mm. And then I had a, I've had a pretty uncomplicated experience of being a boy in my subsequent life, but I can always remember that time when I was young and... Sometimes it emerges, I guess you might say. It appears in my kind of my thinking or my sense of the world. TJ, do you have any remembrance of just how your family reacted to that experience, how, how you were expressing your gender dysphoria? And Basically, my parents, their goal, their, their way of thinking about it was that it was just a phase. And so they, you know, like they would buy me toys that were coded as girl toys. And they would kind of let me dress however I wanted. I, you know what I mean? I would dress sure. in boy clothes, but let's say I was like going to pretend, have a blanket and pretend I was wearing a dress. Like they wouldn't care. It was like, okay. But they assumed that eventually I'd grow out of it, which in fact they did. And yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't policed really. It was just like, oh, that's a phase. Okay. We will accept that and move on. Yeah. No, not a lot of policing in my particular, in my particular family circle. Yeah. yeah, so they weren't super rigid on like, no, we can only get you G.I. Joe toys. But no. <laughs> they didn't, didn't buy you dresses. No, they did not. No, no, no. I, I assume they still had the they had the goal, I assume, for me to be a, a boy and a man. You know what I mean? Like kind of follow the, the, the common path, right? 
But at this point, when I, I'm in my early 30s, and now when I was three or four, transgender wasn't, conversations about transgender weren't really present in my context, at least. So, yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a serious option or like a thought about option to, for me to be transgender. It was just, this is a phase. We were sure he'll kind of be a boy in sort of the common way or the normal way or whatever you might say. So, yeah. Yep. And in fact, it, that is what happened with me. So as I, as I um, grew older, kind of, these are my years of maybe, you know, when I entered school around five, six, seven, eight to 10 in that range. Yeah. Again, I was, I was a young boy and it doesn't, it was pretty unproblematic. Even though a lot of my friends, I, a lot of my friends, they mostly um, played games with girls. I was more involved in the girl games. I should have had a sense that I was different in a way that was hard to place exactly, exactly describe that. But I was less involved in kind of rough play. A lot of the boys during the time of recess or, you know, just the time of just playing around, they'd want to play sports, you know, run around and kick balls and, you know, wrestle or whatever. And I did a little bit of that, but not much. I usually kind of play more imaginative games with a lot of the girls that are around me or some of the girl, the girls like to jump rope thing and I'd often be engaged with them. So there's a difference there. Also, generally I was more, more studious than a lot of my, than all my colleagues, all my classmates. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. That's the easiest thing I can say. I was different. And these are some small ways that they seem to, that different seem to manifest in my life in particular mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the ways that you were aware of how you stood out from uh your peer male peers yeah that's right that's correct so at this time around 10 i was um, i was expanding my friendship i had more friends who were boys and also i had friends who were girls at the same time but i had a particularly prominent deep desire to have a brother and that was a very prominent um a prominent kind of social desire did you have a a brother that you grew up with or no I had, yeah, I had some brothers, but they were all, they're all younger than me. I kind of wanted to peer, a mm, peer brother. Okay. Like they were, my brothers were like young, young babies, basically. Yep. yep. And I know a lot of people have this desire to have, a deep desire to have a brother, but my desire seemed stronger than some of my peers. Or at least that's how I perceived it from my perspective as a young, this young boy. Yeah, that was just an important part. I just remember that distinctively as well, kind of in my way of engaging the world at that age. Um, during my teen years, I was in, living in the U.S. This is around 13, you know, 13, 14-ish. And I actually, I started make, becoming close friends with this classmate, this young boy who was, I don't know, we just, we were kind of both studious. We just like to do similar things, like to talk. So he was, he was, uh, he's a European American. He came from an evangelical church and we became close friends, right? Mm-hmm. So from, you know. 13 to 15. We would usually often spend time together, talk during the day, sometimes visit each other on the weekends, you know, just kind of have a general friendship. Over time, my classmates, again, these are all European Americans. This is in the US, the US. They started noticing my friendship with this boy and they would start um, talking about me, at least, that I was gay or a fag. They used terms like this. At this point, I didn't really know what these words meant, but I, they would just hear them say it. So they said those to you, to you as well, not just to him. Yeah, they said it. They said it more about us, and I would hear it through. Well, I don't know what to say. Social back channels. Like mm-hmm. I would hear about it through others, but I mean, it was never directly said to us, or at least to me. But I would just hear about it, mm-hmm. and I didn't really know what that word, these words meant. But eventually, this particular friend, it was too much for him. He didn't like having this this label attached, like connected to him in any way. And so from that, he eventually decided to like end our friendship. Mm. Now, a few comments. The he and I he and I were we were never sexually intimate or involved. You know, we're just young fifteen, sixteen year olds, you know. Like it wasn't I didn't I didn't understand the words. I didn't really even know know what men would do together sexually you know what i mean i guess that's what i can say like it wasn't i didn't understand it and then the student but the student the classmates when they were talking this about me they were noticing something true about me but i didn't understand that it was true or what it was 
you know? Like, by this time, I had sexual desire, but I didn't, I didn't have words to put what I was... I didn't have words to describe kind of my sexual orientation, you might say. But my best friend, he couldn't handle it. And so he's ended our friendship. And it was it was traumatic in that time. In part because he was my my best friend. Also, in some ways, because he had led me to be a more committed Christian from my previous kind of Christian uh, commitment or tradition. So we were very, yeah, we just were friends and multiple kind of multiple spheres of our lives. Sure. His, his parents, they also, they would talk with him. And this was kind of part of when he was kind of ending our relationship. He talked about this. His parents, they listened to a U.S. psychologist called James Dobson, who I think at this time, he talked about same-sex sexuality because in this time, this was in the early 2000s, in the U.S., these conversations were starting to get more heated around sexuality and same-sex sexuality in the public sphere and the personal sphere, right? Especially among Christians. So anyways, his parents, they told him, and he kind of provided me this interpretation that they had noticed me... Um, I guess sometimes my friend and I would wrestle and I'd become aroused. And they had noticed that, I guess. And mm -hmm. they provided him the interpretation that um, James Dobson says that people who have same-sex attraction, they have problems with their parents, typically their same-sex parents. So they provided, me, they provided him that interpretation and he told me that. And I said, oh, okay. That fits my story a little bit, but not totally. So it, it was a complicated fit, but it wasn't it wasn't an impossible fit. But that was still kind of the thought process he used. At the same time, I just want to mention this as well. I we he and I we had a youth pastor who was helping kind of disciple both of us. And I started talking with him about some of my feelings and he helped me realize he helped me realize more about that. Oh, I'm having like same-sex attraction was the word that was the phrase that was being used. And I said, yeah. And he was he was really great in this context about trying to connect with me and provide me with resources about how to think about it, how to pursue the conversation and topic. So even though my my friend kind of cut me off because he didn't want to handle it, my pastor, who of course is a very different social relationship than my friend, but he's still he still he was still really great. So in this experience, I sort of saw a duality of what Christian responses were in this particular U.S. context at this time, right? Even though my pastor, he provided what we now call SideWireSide X resources, they were the main ones on offer at that point. So he attempted he attempted to help me with the resources that were available, which I can only appreciate, even if in my subsequent years of thinking about it, I would I'm not a supporter of the kind of the sort of resources that he would he provided me. You know what I'm saying? So there's complexities in that, but I could still tell that he loved me and wanted me to flourish, you know? <laughs> and he wasn't willing to just cut me off, even though, again, it's a different sort of relationship. I had a different sort of relationship with him as a pastor than I had with my friend. That's always been a milestone because I saw these different ways of engaging this topic among Christians. And these, these again, these weren't people who were very nuanced in engaging with it, but I... You can still see they have a certain posture to that situation. So it sounds like this friend was reacting more so to the external pressure around how peers in the general culture perceived you to be gay, but not as much from internal pressures in the friendship. He wasn't upset with how anything actually was in your friendship, eh? I think that's true. He didn't want to face the social opprobrium or the social pressure to have to have, to have this label connected to him. Because back then... At least in the U.S., that was a pretty prominent insult. The kids would be like, oh, that's gay. So you said before that this loss of a close friendship was really difficult for you, even a little traumatic. I know you value loyalty really highly as an Enneagram 6. So did this experience in your teenage years impact how you've engaged in future friendships? Yeah, thanks for that question. Yeah, it's definitely that friendship and the difficulties and the kind of feelings of rejection and like loss because I had... I had put a lot of eggs in my, a lot of my friendship energy was devoted towards having friendship with him and being his close best friend. Yeah, it's kind of, subsequently, it's made me much harder to trust people. And I'm much, 
more hesitant to be known. I'm much more hesitant to talk about my sexuality in certain types of friendships. It just made it more complicated because I realized there was something about me that people, even Christians, would reject me for that I did not choose. And I'll say it again because when I this was a time in the U.S. where the common discourse, at least among these Christians that I was around, was that homosexuality is a choice. Now, <laughs> they have a pretty nuanced view, version, vision of what that statement means. And I probably think that statement is less helpful than other statements. And while it is true, all, all human beings do decide what to do, they want to do sexually, I did not experience my sexuality as a choice. It just was something that it was just part of me, I guess, you know? I did not say, hey, I'm waking up to the mor- this morning and I feel like this. It's not what happened. That's pretty ironic that the conservative culture that I also grew up in would really emphasize this choice thing while still using both certain cultural cues of gay behavior that don't relate to sexual choices. And they were using developmental explanations from psychologists for why people might not be straight, which again, isn't anything to do with the choice factor. Yeah. <laughs> while in general, I think that nature, nurture, and choice all play into our sexuality. In your youth, you didn't self-identify using any language, yet both classmates and non-Christians were noticing something about you, not anything about your sexual behavior, mm-hmm. but something that they determined meant that you were gay. Yep, true. I think it just goes to show some of the common inconsistencies, how people's arguments will focus on the choice, but how these experiences are actually much more nuanced. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I, I didn't call myself queer. I wasn't sexually involved with anyone. I I mean, people knew I was a Christian, at, you know, in this these circles. You know what I mean? <laughs> so they, they knew I was a Christian, so they knew what my what I would advocate for, my general sexual ethic. They, they were aware. But, yeah, but they were noticing something about me, as you said. Still, I don't know, made some of them want to reject me or talk, talk about me in negative terms. So at this time, as I started reading the the scriptures more, because I had mentioned I'd become more devoted to walking with Jesus during this time, um, from 14-ish to 16, you might say. And a prominent part of my, a prominent kind of, uh, a prominent part of the Bible that always stood out to me was David and Jonathan and their covenant in 1 Samuel and a little bit mentioned in 2 Samuel. And that, that kind of encapsulated what I wanted. And I saw that I wanted that with this particular friend prior to our friendship kind of um, ending, you might say, being, being closed off by him. And that was, that was a really prominent desire for me. I thought I would marry because the people in my community married, right? It was the common way of doing things. So, of course, I thought I would marry. But that David and Jonathan was kind of what my – it's what provided me a lot of – how can I say this? There was like so much imaginative power in that. There's so much power and desire and hope for that sort of relationship. And there seemed to be a lot of the good life was kind of in that relationship of faithfulness. That they would chase, chase friends, but that relationship of commitment and brotherhood. That was a prominent like vision cast or trope that continued in my Christian life and has continued since then. And whenever I tell my story, I have to recognize that that emerged during this age in my early Christian life, and it continued into now. Something else in my later youth, eventually I was living in on the, in the African continent with my relatives who lived there. And so I experienced what it means to be queer in that context as a young man. And there's a lot to say about this, and I don't think I can cover all of it, but in some ways, it was it was really freeing because they didn't have a strict gender code. They had more strict in some sense on the more overarching path, like more overarching gender codes. For example, men men you know protect the household. Men need to be productive for the household. Women manage the household. So generally, pretty more firm in that way. But underneath that, they didn't have as strict of ways of thinking about gender codes. For example, they someone's not coded for queer or gay just because their voice is high. But in the U.S., I'd experienced, you know, when I was 14 or 15, that having a high voice would be coded as feminine or gay, things like that. This was not the case in my African context. 
So it's more free for me at least. Um, because you can tell if I'm wrong, David Frank, but I think I'm relatively straight passing. Meaning, unless I tell people, people would not usually know, even though I, apparently I wasn't when I was a youth. I was less straight passing because these kids were saying these things about me. One of my my college roommate, which I'll talk about that in a second, but my college roommates, he uh, he was surprised when I told him too. I told him a couple of years after we graduated. He just said, "Hey, you seem so masculine, and you." I have some of the stereotypical masculine qualities that people say, such as, "I'm not immediately emotionally reactive." I kind of keep a distance. You know what I mean? Like those, some of those stereotypical masculine traits. So yeah, I guess that's how it is. <laughs> but in the African context, I was just basically more free. And I had, I have a lot of brothers who live there and I could be more free with, I could just be free with them. So in some ways it was way more, way more freedom there, but also in another way, it was more dangerous if I was sexually involved with anyone there was more danger there at the same time too for someone who's outed as being queer or gay because they have there's more kind of social and legal ramifications because at the same time as the u.s has becoming uh, more open to gayness or queerness and the law has fewer punitive measures taken against people having gay or gay sex in the african my african context it's become more of an issue more more punitive measures all of these things it never has really touched me, but it's just been a dynamic that I'm aware of. In addition to laws about homosexual sex, do they, similar to Leviticus, also have laws about things like incest? They have them, but they're not commonly talked about because it's obvious that they're bad. You know what I mean? Like the, so the social norm is just obvious, so it's not a common conversation. So homosexual sex laws are talked about way more frequently? They're thought of way more often in contemporary times because there's seen to be political pressure, usually from the quote-unquote West, usually from Europe, Western Europe and the U.S., in order to change the laws. Which this could be a whole other episode. I have mixed feelings on some of these topics, but that is the case, yeah. I'm going to jump to my college years now. In, in kind of 2010s, I went to a Christian college in the U.S., and this... This was a prominent topic to talk about, um, just same-sex sexuality, gayness, kind of during these years, because this was a time, again, when there was a lot of political fervor over same-sex sexuality in the U.S. and other places, but in the U.S. particularly. So I, I said one of my majors was theology, so I studied theology, and this came up in numerous classes because it was always, it was always kind of something we had to wrestle with. Even though at this point we didn't know, I don't think there are too many people who are out as queer or gay or bi or whatever. And I myself, while I knew I was queer, I still didn't really have categories, which seems funny. <laughs> but that's the easiest way. I didn't have categories to kind of put it put together. I knew I was mostly attracted to other men, but I just didn't have a category to put it. I didn't have, there was no word choice I used to describe myself. I just knew it was part of my life. In college was when I started discovering resources that are kind of side B in nature, such as spiritual friendship, the blog. That was kind of that was my first connection. And then I read there's an author who I think some of the listeners of the podcast might know called Wesley Hill, who's a side B currently Episcopal priest. He wrote a book called Wash and Waiting. I read that in in my college years. And so I was starting to get into the conversation more, but I wasn't out, quote unquote, to many people in my life so yeah and I actually this is glossing over a whole lot but I actually did not I did not feel the need yet to put all the pieces together in college I was focusing a lot on my vocations such as doing well at school preparing for being like a scholar you know you know what I mean sort of those pursuits did you also pursue friendships or were you completely absorbed into your studies I was still pursuing close friendships I actually mentioned, in our first episode, I mentioned my college roommate named Joel. And he was a close friend of mine, and he still is. Yeah, I had close friendships. And I I had a few select close friends that were still in touch until today, 10 years later or whatever. So you were pegged as gay in high school, had a nice time in Africa, and only began to dip into online conversations on faith and sexuality in college. So 
When did you return to Africa and how are you engaging this topic of same-sex attraction and queerness later? So I returned after college, I returned to live with my relatives in the African continent. And we, um, I don't know, it was, again, it was not prominent. I was just living life, working, growing professionally, trying to be part of the church, be part of my relationships, all of those things. But I still was connecting through this, mostly through online resources, again, like spiritual friendship or occasional books or study about different topics regarding these things. I think I mentioned I'm a social scientist by background. So I was interested in engaging in social scientific research on these topics as well. So these things kind of started. And at this point, I guess you'd call me kind of implicitly side ish because I didn't use a label to talk about myself. And I was probably more against that, but it wasn't a very strong, committed stance or position. It was just sort of implicitly. But in this time, you did share with some people that you weren't straight. I started I started telling some of my close friends and people over time, like a few, one or two here, one or two there, that this was part of my life. Did those conversations go well? Yeah, they all went all right, surprisingly well. And I was nervous about some of them. Yeah, it can be it can be hard. Again, because I had a bad experience with like a evangelical Protestant, like from a conservative church. I w- I've always been a little bit nervous to talk to evangelical Protestants about that. That's part of the reason why our mutual friend, I was hesitant to tell him because of his particular church background. Even though he's my friend and I like him so much, I didn't, I was worried, just worried how he would engage it. And then the next years from around 2010 to 2018 or whatever, this was mostly, I mostly was studying this personally. But again, it wasn't a particularly prominent part. It was prominent in my life. It affected all parts of my life, but it wasn't like the key things I was thinking about in my life. Does that make sense? Even though as I got older, more and more, um, as there, there was mounting pressure for me to marry, it started to become more prominent over time. I didn't realize how late in life some of this conversation was to you, but I totally get that it just becomes a little more relevant when relatives are pressuring you to marry and you need to think about what shape your life will take. Yeah, hundred percent. And this actually, this became more prominent in some ways when I spoke with you, David Frank, when I, you once sent me a text and I didn't quite understand what you meant, but I thought you meant that you were not straight somehow. So then I also replied to you, oh, I'm also not straight. This is approximately 2017, around that time. And then from there, we've kind of been conversation partners about this topic over the past, what, four years. And and then this became even more prominent once you and I decided to go to the first revoice in 2018, I think. That's when I felt like I started to more understand the conversation, the community, the discourses that were on offer how to think about these things. And I started to put more of the pieces together in my life. So that's four years ago. Prior to that, I'm not sure if I would have been out because I was I was living in my African community where people are not out. So it was just, it was, it just was not a community where I had conversations with others about it much. As we started going to revoice and connecting, then I felt like I had to start figuring this out more. And also, again, I was getting older, so it was mounting pressure for me to marry. And like, so I had to figure out what, what, what is my path forward at, in my kinship vocation? Will I marry? Will I join a monastery? Will I focus on committed friendships? Like, among, and the variations of all those paths, what would that look like? And at the same time, I started to figure out how do I talk about this to others? who I'm coming out to or who care about my life. What do I talk about? How do I talk about these things? So then I had to figure out, I had to delve in the whole, this whole sad controversy about terminology. <laughs> and I say sad because that's my perspective on it, that it's just a, it's a thing that people put too much energy towards, in my opinion. But I had to figure out what to do with that as well. So over time, I might have mentioned this previously, but I decided to use the term queer to talk about my sexuality. And some of the reasons why I used it is I've often found gay to be too binary. 
And by that, you mean that when people think of gay or straight, then they think of people as being 100% attracted to the same sex or 100% attracted to the opposite sex. Yep. Whereas it is often more nuanced for people. Yep. And mine has been predominantly towards men, but not exclusively. And even if we separate sexual desire and romantic desire, then it becomes even more blurry in some ways. Even though I would still, romantic desire is still oriented mostly towards men. I think my my sort of desire that seems most natural to me would be to have a committed relationship with both a man and a woman at the same time, which in part is also why I use queer. My orientation is still predominantly towards a man, but it's not exclusively. So yeah, it's, it's a conflict of that mix. That's why I use queer in my particular life if I need to. Again, I'm side B, so I think it's all prudential and pragmatic judgments depending on your context, what term you use. I don't use gay or queer if I'm in my African context. And if I'm talking to some evangelical Protestants who struggle with queer or gay or whatever, I'm fine with using same-sex sexually attracted, SSSA or SSA, no problem. I'm flexible, whatever. But if I, if you just ask me what term I would use, that seems like most appropriate to me, I'd probably use queer. So that's why I've talked about myself subsequently from 2018 times approximately. TJ, could you share what has compelled you to stay committed to the side B position that is the position that maintains the historic Christian teaching on same-sex sexual ethics and why you haven't ascribed to side A that is an affirming position? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to provide an account. Again, there's more to say about this, but this is like a brief account of why it has remained compelling, the side B position. First, I'm going to say, I think I'm going to differentiate this and why I'm not side A why I think the affirming perspective does not seem compelling and a compelling account. And then I'll describe why I'm side B in particular. So first, side A. In my undergraduate college years, again, we studied this. I thought about this a lot as a person. I tried to read the resources I could that were available to me easily. I pursued this both, I tried to understand both theology and some social science ways of engaging this topic, right? And basically, the, the account provided by side A readings of the scriptures and the tradition and the hermeneutics they had on offer, I could never square them with the hermeneutics that I understood as being most faithful or the ways of living a Christian life that I could be, that I could live in. For example, I had a hard time understanding the, the scriptures, both the quote unquote clobber passages as well as the overarching vision of the scriptures. I thought that the the traditional sexual um, traditional sexual ethic accounts, especially from the Catholic Church, I will say, were more beautiful, <laughs> and that beauty seemed to indicate the truth and the goodness that was inherent in them. I also couldn't understand the lives of the saints, or the teaching of the liturgy, especially the liturgy of marriage. If I was side A, they 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 wouldn't make sense to me anymore. And and I see this as someone who's actually very interested and often likes to put my, my own thinking or my own working conversations with liberation hermeneutics, like liberation theology and the related hermeneutics, which is usually what a lot of the side A people I'm reading are using those types of things, not all, but many, because I think it's helpful for us to think about um, what true human flourishing is and to challenge status quos that are often unjust, not always, but often unjust. So I'm interested in that, but I still couldn't put the pieces together for how, how as a human person, you use your sexuality, how it could be oriented towards same-sex sex, or like what that would mean for the Christian theological tradition or the theological endeavor, or walking, following the saints and following Jesus. I could not put the pieces together. Another thing I, I can't deny, we all know knowledge is social, like knowledge is formed in communities, right? So I also had to see the Christians around me that I saw as most faithful, they were side, they were not side A. Does that make sense? Like the ones that I really saw as trying to follow God in ways that I can understand the, the gospel and the Christian path, the way, the way of the living God, they were not side A, they were side B. So there's a, there's a certain sense of trust I trusted the church and the long history to be 
part of that process of what I was doing. There's also that. I said to say, I don't think I've ever told you this, David Frank, but there's also, there's, I had a spiritual experience which kind of helped me, which keeps me away from side A. So when I was 16 or 17, I was sitting in my room and I was um, kind of filled with lust and I was desiring to masturbate. But then uh, suddenly I had some sort of vision, like a, it just came before me. This has not been uncommon in my spiritual life, but it, it happened at this time. It came before me and I was, and I saw myself standing at a precipice of a large chasm, an abyss, a void. And then I looked down and there was nothingness and I couldn't see the bottom, but it seemed, I could see there was no life. There's only basically death. And then I had a flash of insight, a burst of wisdom. And in that, that insight, that wisdom, I realized that my the sexual desire I had for masturbation and for success for other men, that desire was sterile. It didn't produce life, right? Like sex, sex is for producing, continuing the human line. Like that's the main goal. Again, there's a sterility to masturbation and sex with the same sex. And that, that spiritual vision has remained with me since then. And it's always influenced my posture and sensibility towards this question. So that's also part of the account of why I'm not side A. And I have to say as a sub subtext or tangent, related tangent, that's also why I often, I usually argue about this with European American um, Protestants who usually want to separate sex from procreation. <laughs> and I'm like, eh, you people, why do you do this? Because it seems it makes everything harder to provide the Christian sexual ethic if you make major separations. And that's why I've often found, I'm exploring the Orthodox more, but I've often found the Catholic accounts of sex vastly superior towards anything I see among a lot of Protestants. Mostly because the Protestants I've engaged with usually want to separate them in a way that I think makes um, the sexual ethic make much less sense. Yeah, thank you for sharing, TJ. I was going to ask, like, have there been significant moments where like you've been, you've really considered kind of going to a side A perspective, but was this kind of a spiritual re revelation of just the kind of <laughs> the, the nature of the, the darkness that lay within your desires, if I can say it that way, mm -hmm. has that been a really strong guard against changing your your theological or faith commitments in this way? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can say that there's a there's a side B writer that I like, and he has once on a, I saw his Twitter bio, and he said, side B believes with side A feelings. And I often feel like that. I've never seriously felt convicted to shift my beliefs to side A, in part because of um, my study, what I see as the life of the saints, what I see as a Christian tradition and a spiritual experience. They've actually all been together. They've been a pretty strong ward or defense against thinking that side A was a viable Christian alternative. That said, <laughs> I will I will straight up say I often desire to have side A relationships in my feelings. Does that make sense? Even though I've never been able to shift my mind or you might say my heart towards thinking that was appropriate. Like they've never seen like viable or convincing accounts to me for what the Christian, the gospel of Christian faith is teaching about how human beings are meant to live a good life in our, in the creation. From some of the other side B people that I know, I've, I feel like I've struggled less with, with struggled less with feeling like I should become side A than many, even though I will, I've had the desires, <laughs> you know what I mean? I've had desires to have side A relationships, yeah, 100%. And I, it's still something that is part of my life. And in fact, right now, I'm kind of in a, a I'm kind of in a time of like lament or sadness, trying to put the pieces together, what my life will look like still. And having these desires, but not knowing what, how to, they should be fulfilled or not. I know, obviously I know, I, I don't want to have sex with people of the same sex. And I don't want to have a sexual romantic relationship with multiple people, you know, things like that. Because I'm, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I love the Holy Spirit. I love the Father. I love the church. 
<laughs> I, I trust that our ancestors were trying to lead us rightly in, in faithfulness to God. But I'm still trying to, I still have these desires and it's still complicated in my feelings, even if my theological ideas or commitments or sensibilities or perspectives, it's not difficult. So yeah, there's a, there's a, I just, there's like division in me in some way. Yeah. TJ just shared with us about how his relationship with God and the church informed his rejection of a side A theology. But after we recorded this episode, he had some more thoughts to share about how he perceives many side A ways of thinking as embedded in liberalist thought that are at odds with not only Christian thinking, but also at odds with non-dominant cultures throughout the world. So David Frank, a few more thoughts about why I'm not side A. First of all, I usually see side A people that I know or thinkers that I read very normed by sort of the zeitgeist to the age, the contemporary ways of thinking and values that seem to be more formed by European liberalist traditions and kind of their emergent social formations like capitalism. For example, often they emphasize autonomy, individualism, liberalist norms of justice, which are individualistic. Also, usually therapeutic values, such as comfort, convenience, sort of this progressive stance where, oh yeah, everything else was foolish before, but now that we have modern science, or now that we have psychology, or now that we have more ways of reading, or now that we know X, Y, Z, that all these things were just backwards, benighted confusion from the past. Of course, not all sighted people think that, but the sighted people I engage with are often thinking in those terms and or mobilizing these values. Now, the way I understand Christianity is that these values are actually some sort of an outgrowth which is wrong, a development which is wrong, confusion somehow of what the sort of broad Christian tradition is trying to inculcate in people the values and the ways of life that they want people to have. And in fact, I see liberalism and it's sort of uh, philosophical postures and positions as questionable, questionable and often contrasting with Christianity, part of why I'm a post-liberal in my sort of political orientation or ways of thinking about things. So insofar as I see side A people support this, it immediately makes me wary and wonder why would I ever be side A? Because these are actually not the values that I think Christianity teaches from the beginning, and I think Christianity contends with this contemporary zeitgeist, and I think Christianity, this, the spiritual DNA of Christianity is, from the beginning, is not leading us that way. I also want to mention, I mentioned kind of the tradition in the past, but it's also important for me to mention that when I think about it, I want Jesus, the apostles, the church mothers and fathers, to recognize me as walking in the same way of life along the same spirituality as they themselves are walking. Of course, in the past, there were people who were celibate for all their life, for people who were celibate for a lot of their life, for people who were struggled for chastity, or people who had to challenge dominant ways of narrating sex, power, ways we share resources, ways we think about other human beings, all of these things and more. And I want to walk in that. I want them to recognize me as part of our people. So because of that, I, I have a harder time being side A because I think that if I was side A, they would no longer recognize that I'm trying to walk in the same spirituality. Of course, I think the spirituality they offer is much more than just a personal sexual ethic. It's also engaging the structures that we live in. For example, political economy, sociocultural situation or context all of these things. And oftentimes forms of Christianity in the contemporary world have divided Christianity from political economy or whatever, all of which is wrong. But that doesn't mean that I think that the personal nature of the faith is not also there. So that's something that's been important to me. I often think there's this way of viewing the world, which is weird. A dominant culture right now is Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. This is not the norm for the world, all time, everywhere. This is kind of a unique formation, which mostly emerged in the U.S. and kind of Western Europe. 
might be benefits to it, but also has also more disconnected from the way the world is lived by most people. And I think more disconnected from Christianity in many ways. Second, I think orthopraxy or right living and orthodoxy, right belief and right worship are intimately always together. Christianity is a way of life. So people try to situate themselves, posture themselves, orientate themselves towards living in a way faithful to God in all aspects of life. Again, not just personal ethics, but also existing as a person in structures of power, value, knowledge, resources. And I think that in some way, having a good way of life or living rightly is and something more has a preeminence sword orthodoxy in some sense, in that even if we cannot actually articulate orthodoxy well, like if I can't articulate well the Trinitarian formulations, if I cannot articulate well the whole theology of the body, why we try to live sexually the way we're trying to live, that's okay. But the because the most crucial thing is that I try to live a faithful life. Like I try to love God and love my neighbor amidst kind of being faithful in the whole creation. I guess even if you're not sure, even if you have to shove a conversation because you don't know it, even if you struggle to believe with it, still living that way of life is the most faithful. I, think, I have an idea of the primacy of orthopraxis in some sense for the normal life of most Christians that I think we should always try to live faithfully even even when it's hard, even when we don't understand. To actually give up the path of trying to live faithfully is can be a bad decision, even though I admit this is a complicated situation. Hmm. Thanks, TJ. I hear you saying that your love of God and secondarily your love of the church is what primarily drives this vision of faithfulness inside of you. Yeah. And while this spiritual experience helped you kind of see sin for what it is, tension remains. Not simply tension from remaining sinful desires, but also tension from trying to discern very practically how your life is going to be set up. Will you be married? Who will your emergency contact be? Mm. Where and with whom should you plant yourself? Yeah. In a lot of ways, these questions and tensions are the same that are experienced by all single people because we come from such a couple-oriented culture in the West that singleness feels very disconnected. Yeah, true. It can mm -hmm. feel very unstable and insecure regardless of sexual orientation. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. For a queer person, the shape of the desires are not easily matched in marriage necessarily. So it's more complex. So yeah, they're analogous in some way, but different. There's so much more we could say about kind of the path I'm looking forward, kind of the, what I'm looking for, the kinship vocation I will have. And I think we'll talk about that in future episodes. But one thing I just want to say among my, I just have to mention this, among the three branches of my family, it's especially hard for my African relatives. They really emphasize marriage so much. And that's actually one of the, I will say it right now, it's one of the, the chief sources of tension in thinking about my my future kinship vocation, because I, man, I'm getting it. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm getting it. They're telling me like, what, what are you marrying? Like, what's happening? Like, hey, hurry up. Time is going. Like, we want children, da-da-da. We want grandchildren, etc. Yeah, so, you know, eh, it's there's there's some complexity there. I will say that right now. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about that again later someday. I don't know. But it can be hard. Do they not have in your African community any examples of vocational singleness? No, 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 no. The the Western church, the, the church that emerged from Europe, used to have at least at least like archetypes in the background of monastics like monks but no this african community or african christian community that i'm part of does not they're like monks are seen as obviously not obtaining flourishing because these africans which is good they recognize that sex is they recognize children as such a good and children are such a good continuing the community um, kind of continuing the life force a lineage it's such a good that anything that does not do that is um, it's hard for them to see that's flourishing, basically. It, it has helped the African church that I'm connected to or part of. It has helped them 
be clear on what the purposes of sex are. They don't fall into the, the U.S. European American romantic vision of sex. Like, oh, they're just life partners who have fun together. But instead they're like, no, it's for children, continuing our family, building our family, like just achieving a human good. That's much more the African posture sensibility that I know. So yeah, there's there's a difference there. I just want to say um, one more thing before I move on why I'm side B specifically. I'm still learning and growing and thinking through these things, but this is where I sit and this is I feel pretty firm about it. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to have this podcast, you know, because I don't feel very conflicted about the sexual ethic that I'm trying to follow, even though I, I struggle to follow in some ways. <laughs> But I don't feel conflicted about the general path, you know? <laughs> so I mentioned why I'm not side A, and I want to talk about why I'm side B and not side Y or side X. Basically, I, as I said, I didn't find side A as I count very persuasive. Specifically, I am side B because... I became convinced of an account of queerness that it's more than just same-sex sexual attraction. That same-sex sexual attraction is a necessary but not sufficient component of what, what we might call queerness now. And even as I started to allude, before I had sexual attraction, I still had a desire to have close brotherly friendships with some. And that seemed like I had a stronger desire than a lot of my classmates. And I see there's something good. So I basically see there's multiple strands of attraction, emotion, and desire involved in what I think of as queerness. And one of those is something I think is disordered, the same-sex sexual attraction. But I don't think that can define all of what it is. And I say that in part, of course, there's, there's uh, background assumptions to that. For example, my own story, things that I talked about. But additionally, I think it's a big burden to someone and I think it's hard to live a good life if you just think queerness is a burden or a curse or a disease or some other trope like that. I hope we talk about tropes in the future, but I think that's like a burden. It makes having a human life harder. It makes having a good life harder. So there's a, there's a performative or practical element to the way that we conceptualize these things and the influences how we actually try to live our life. So there's that. Also, I will say it straight up, and this is part of this. I've had a, I like myself. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I enjoy who I am, even though there's some, a few parts that I struggle with, but I enjoy who I am. And I understand being queer as part of that, having influenced myself. And I mentioned that from the beginning. I was more studious as a person. Like, I liked it about myself. And I tie my queerness in some way to that, even though I don't always understand like all the causal mechanisms involved. And because I like myself, and I, and I like the queer part of myself in a lot of ways, I'm willing to have a more nuanced account. And I think that in fact is the case, that it is more nuanced than just, you just have this horrible part about you, horrible thing about you. So that's one thing. Second, side B, I find them contextual. I think they can better contextualize themselves to um, the different contexts we face because there's, there's a wisdom in their prudence they're willing to engage with multiple sources of knowledge, you know? I see side Y and sometimes side X. When I speak with side Y or side X people, they're still using the idea, usually of father wounds or parent wounds, though that might have some validity in why, if you're gonna talk about why people are same-sex attracted or whatever, that could have some validity, but actually the etiology, the reason why people have same-sex attraction if you read contemporary research, it's more complicated. But for some reason, mostly evangelical Protestants are still continuing these these narratives of this, even though it can be more complicated. There can be more factors. The factors are not the same for everyone. So I appreciate side B has usually been more willing to engage in the research than the other, than side Y and side X, people who are ostensibly trying to follow the, the traditional sexual ethic. Some, something else about side B is that I think it just allowed, this is more personal, but related to the Pierce ones, it allowed me to put more of the pieces together. And again, I just have to mention this, there's been, there's often this trope that people who are not side A, we hate ourselves, and I don't hate myself, but I think if I was side Y or side X, it'd be harder for me, at least, to say that I did not like myself. <laughs> 
So basically, there's some certain social and psychological factors in part for why I'm side B. Also, I think side B can provide can provide more. This is kind of a contextual point. I think they provide more convincing readings from the the, the, the difference in time we have from when the New Testament, Old Testament were written to contemporary times, and we can better navigate the changes in how thinking about this topic has occurred. Just again, because we're more prudential and pragmatic. At the same time being side B, we can recognize the past errors of side X when that was the most common way of thinking about these topics in the past, because there were issues with that. And I think that a lot of their claims are not substantiated about change. So side B lets me engage with those things. Finally, side B, I like that we're, we're thinking about things and we're kind of experimenting. Like there's an experimental aspect. We're like trying to discern more, discover more, think, reframe, pursue kind of new avenues that are from the past. Think about what it means in this context. I like that experimental nature that I see as less prominent in Y and X. So yeah, those are the reasons why I think I'm side B. <laughs> you have a really interesting way that you navigate these things. You are a hardcore traditionalist, but you are also not content to let things settle and are constantly wanting to both learn and critique as culture develops. And with regards to thinking on sexuality, you believe the Side B community is practicing this missiology that you're hoping for the best. Yeah, something like that. Theologically, I'm definitely a traditionalist in some way, but I'm, I'm often interested in kind of new ways of thinking about things or expanding the conversation to new communities or reflecting on what this means in this new cultural context or something like that, you know? Like I, those, that's kind of what I live for. And that's, that's the good that maybe I'm called to do. So yeah, I'm complicated in that way. TJ, a common critique from a side Y perspective is that a queer sexual identity gets in the way of our true identity in Christ. In response to this, you've tried to think within a model of a hierarchy of identities that gives more nuance to how you think about yourself. Can you share with us how this quote unquote queer identity fits in with your other identities? Yeah, sure. Side Y people use this straw man argument that by calling ourselves queer, we think queer is our most important identity or more important than our Christian identity. I've always found it extremely confusing. So I try to envision a ranking system from one to 10. Let's say one is the most important, 10 is the least important. And I thought about, well, I have multiple identities, quote unquote. I think of myself in multiple ways. There's multiple things that are important to me. And then multiple communities of belonging that I'm part of, right? That influence my life. So I was like, okay, what's the most important one? And I would say a son of God. I mean, I'm both a man and I'm a Christian. That's my, that's the main pathway, the main community of belonging I'm trying to be part of. Even if I fail, that's kind of the goal, right? Then number two, probably being a brother, being a friend, belonging to my particular ethnic groups in their particular areas or homelands or whatever. That's maybe second. Number three, I might say my particular Christian tradition. I'm currently part of the Anglican tradition, thinking about orthodoxy. So that's pretty important. That really shapes my life, the sensibilities I have, the faith, what I try to accomplish as a Christian, kind of, yeah, how I worship, how I pray. And number four, I was like, well, I guess I've always thought of myself as sort of a scholarly vocation where I do research. So that'd be another one. So anyways, I went through one through four. And then you might say the least important one, number 10, are something like, I like pineapple or I like the color blue. Those are obviously not important, but they're, they're true statements and they are a certain community that I belong in, right? I like the color blue. It's true. But then if we jump to, I've done through the first four, let's jump to five. Maybe queerness would come five because it does influence my life in important ways. And I'm happy to be able to name it. It has real causal influence in my life. I am not married in part because I'm queer and it's been complicated, right? If I was straight, I assume I would have been married. If I was side A, I assume I'd be in a side A relationship, right? Um, I guess there's another thing. Side B would be another identity somewhere on this list, but probably four or something. Or sorry, four, three, four. But being queer is still there. But you can see, you can have a complex ranking or hierarchy of your identities and still think that your Christian identity is most important and not think and recognize that queer is 
part of part of this list of identities, but it doesn't have prominence over the others, even if it touches all parts of your life. So the meta narrative I'm trying to live within is a Christian one, but that doesn't mean that I'm not queer or it does not influence my life. And I say that I'm, yeah, and I say that in part because queerness helps us recognize both the shape of our lives and our discipleship and connect with people. It also helps us recognize, like I talked about rejection I've had being queer when I was young. And I can name that, right? And I can name the way it made my life more complicated or more distant. Yeah, that piece is what I particularly associate with. Being able to just name the experience that I have in common with others so that we can work together and speak plainly about how God is calling us as brothers and sisters to take our lives as they are and give them fully to him for his glory. I hope to think about how we can do this more and how sharing my own story can be fruitful in these ways. Yeah, true. Yeah, I look forward to hearing your thoughts and I know our conversations will continue. So we shall see what emerges in the conversation into the future. Well, that wraps us up for today. Thanks for sharing your story and perspective, TJ. For our friends listening, please share this podcast or episode with anyone you think might be interested. Also, on our Anchor page, which is linked in the show notes, you can leave us voice messages and questions. We'd really love to hear from you.